The Bowery Boys episode 333, Tearing Down King George. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young going solo today, solo showtime, with a little tale of monument removal. Now, throughout the United States right now, communities are reevaluating monuments of the past and what they mean in the 21st century. Now, in some cases, institutions and cities are willingly letting go of these artifacts, and in others, by the heavy-handed destruction during late-night protests. But at least in most of these cases, this reevaluation seems clear and even overdue. For instance, the Confederacy, which pursued a core mission of preserving slavery, lasted just four years and lost the war 155 years ago. But other decisions are not clear at all. The main argument against this type of removal is that this current moment of correction simply intends to erase history. Okay, erase history. These words have popped up a lot during this debate, and I've grown a little tired of them, I must say, because these public monuments, which for decades have become aging features of the public sphere, have actually lost most of their historical relevance already. People walk by these things every day and could not tell you the names or accomplishments of any of these men on their horses, okay? For instance, I defy you to walk through Central Park today and name all the people depicted in all of the monuments, okay, without looking at the plaques. Most people can't. These monuments have aged to become decoration, basically aesthetically pleasing fossils. In many cases, what is happening in this present moment is peeling away the ivy and looking once again at the nature of these subjects, at their unblemished history, and at their actual accomplishments. So history is not being erased it is, in most cases, being corrected. Now, occasionally a monument or a statue can, in itself, develop a separate meaning from the historical figure being presented. Uh, and like what happens when you have a landmarks law that protects a place or an object which becomes or is later revealed to be morally objectionable, right? And then, of course, a statue's meaning can change over time. No greater example of this exists than the Statue of Liberty, which transformed from a present from the French celebrating American democracy into a symbol of America's acceptance of newly arriving immigrants. Now, whether you agree with all of that or not, all of this is just to say that a monument itself is not a history lesson, but a time capsule of the motivations of the culture who created it. 250 years ago, during the colonial period, America received its first commissioned public statues, okay? One in South Carolina and two in the city of New York. 
And the greatest of these was a monumental statue of King George III, which once sat in Bowling Green Park at the tip of Manhattan Island. This statue was erected here not because, oh yay, everyone loved King George. Its story is a little bit more complicated. And it's an example to keep in mind when thinking about any public work today. How these things appear in our world is never simple, and how they leave this world even less so. On July 9, 1776, angry New Yorkers violently tore down the statue of King George, and as the story goes, rendered his body into bullets used on the battlefields of the Revolutionary War. But that legend of American liberty is not as simple as it seems either. For in a few ways, King George III is still with us today. This story begins 11 years earlier from this particular event, in the year 1765. And it begins with a riot. England's attempts to apply taxation to its American colonies without due representation in its government is, of course, one of the primary reasons these colonies eventually fought for their independence. One egregious example of taxation was enacted by Parliament on March 22, 1765, the Stamp Act, requiring all paper documents in the colonies be subject to a direct tax. These stamps were required on many official documents, contracts and marriage licenses, newspapers, and even playing cards, so it would be impossible for most colonists to avoid paying this tax. This tax was created to pay for England's growing war debts. The Americans were naturally not pleased. Representatives from all the colonies convened in New York City on October of 1765 to organize a protest of the law which would go into effect on November 1st. But cordial discussions went out the window on October 23rd, 1765, when a ship arrived into New York Harbor bringing in the approved stamped papers and vellum. Thousands gathered at the battery at the tip of Manhattan in protest, and the military was brought in to smuggle the stamped items into nearby Fort George, where New York colonial governor Cadwallader Colton also hunkered down. Protesters by the thousands filled the streets, and merchants vowed to stop selling British goods. On November 1st, when the Stamp Act finally took effect, another group gathered at the Commons, that is the site of today's New York City Hall. They gathered here for a remarkable display. To quote from Gotham by Mike Wallace and Edwin Burroughs, quote, The crowd hoisted a scaffold from which hung an elaborate effigy of Governor Colden. Beside him sat a devil, whispering instructions in his ear, unquote. This group met with a second phalanx of fiery demonstrators, pulling Colden's own personal coach and an equally vulgar effigy of the governor. Well, they all made their way to Bowling Green just outside the fort. For days, tensions seethed upon the open area in front of Fort George. Colden wanted officers to fire indiscriminately into the crowd, but more sober suggestions prevailed. Colden escaped by ship and was eventually replaced with the more amenable governor, Sir Henry Moore. 
believe it or not, these riots were repeated in several colonial cities, including Boston, where effigies of British officials were hung from a liberty tree near Boston Common. Coordinating this effort were a group of revolutionaries known as the Sons of Liberty, who first appeared on the streets of New York in response to the Stamp Act. The streets were filled with nightly demonstrations into the new year. The American Revolution might have begun in the year 1766, if not for the eventual repeal of the Stamp Act. One of the leading voices of that repeal in Parliament was a man named William Pitt the Elder, later the Earl of Chatham, a respected hero from the Seven Years' War who was no friend of King George III. Pitt sided openly with the colonists and spoke out against the Stamp Act in January of 1766. Quote, the Americans have been wronged. They have been driven to madness by injustice. Will you punish them for the madness you have occasioned? Upon the whole, I will beg leave to tell the House what is really my opinion. It is that the Stamp Act be repealed absolutely, totally, and immediately. Two months later, almost to the day of William Pitt's speech, the Stamp Act was officially repealed. Now, while there were actually many factors and many voices crying for the appeal of this act, the colonists turned their thanks to William Pitt, who they believed to be a true advocate for the colonies. Their appreciation was so great, in fact, that here in New York, there were calls for a statue to be built in honor of Pitt and to be displayed in a public place. Now, that is a rather unusual request for New York in 1766. For the most part in the city, there was no public statuary at all. Being a colony of Protestant-leaning persuasion, statues were not regular components of public decoration. Greek and Roman ideals were hardly reflected in architecture here or in the common sphere of a relatively young port town. And America didn't exactly have a lot of talented sculptors sitting around waiting for work. Then there was also the issue of Pitt as a champion of the American cause. And an honor to this great man might become something of a spot for rebellion. So this request by the colonists was truly extraordinary. The demand was so great that it was taken up by the New York colonial legislature for consideration. Their allegiances, though, were different. From a 1920 history from the New York Historical Society, quote, It was William Pitt whom the colonists desired mostly to honor in consideration of his many services. But the legislature apparently could hardly justify the expenditure of a sum of money to honor Pitt and ignore the king, so we find the first suggestion for the famous equestrian statue of King George III originating in the assembly of the Colony of New York in June of 1766. New York could not get a statue of Pitt unless it also took one for King George III. The cry for a statue of William Pitt was organic. It came from the people. The statue of King George was a political machination, an appeasement to the will of the crown. And so approval was granted for the commission of two statues for the streets of New York. 
Now, at the same time, interestingly enough, the Assembly for the Province of South Carolina also approved the creation of a William Pitt statue for the city of Charleston. The commission for these three statues, then, was sent to the London sculptor Joseph Wilton, a popular creator of royal and political busts. The New York and South Carolina marble statues of William Pitt, well, they were mostly similar. Six feet tall, one arm upraised, their bodies adorned in a toga befitting a Roman philosopher. The King George equestrian statue, on the other hand, was monumental and grand, made of gilded lead, modeled upon the equestrian statue of Marcus Aurelius on the Capitoline Hill in Rome. The king's body, according to reports, was about a third larger than a natural man. Upon his head sat not a crown, but a graceful laurel wreath. By the summer of the year 1770, so, so 250 years ago this year, the statues were completed and then sent to the colonies. In August that year, the King George Monumental, all 4,000 pounds of it, was placed in Bowling Green Park upon a pedestal 18 feet tall. Now, Bowling Green had been where the Sons of Liberty had wanted the statue of William Pitt. Instead, this imposing monolith now stood there, the royal horsemen gesturing up Broadway into the city. Cadwallader Colden, who had who had come back to the city by this time, wrote approvingly of the statue's reception, quote, Our loyalty, firm attachment, and affection for his majesty's person was expressed by drinking the king's health and a long continuance of his reign under the discharge of 32 pieces of cannon. The whole company walked in procession from the fort round the statue while the spectators expressed their joy in loud acclamations. Meanwhile, William Pitt made his less dynamic debut on the streets of New York a couple weeks later. And I mean literally on the street. It was, it was propped up upon a smaller pedestal in the middle of the intersection between Wall Street and William Street, near the coffeehouse hangouts of those who first desired it. Both statues were adequate. The colonial painter John Singleton Copley wrote, quote, I have seen the statues of the king and Mr. Pitt, and I think they are both good statues. But such statuary of the sort found, say, in Paris or Rome, now seemed to be awkwardly placed in a contentious town on the frontier of the British Empire. Now, New York had a population of only about 20,000 people at this time, and about 20% of that population were enslaved people. Many New Yorkers, including many of those Sons of Liberty, were involved or profited from the slave trade in some fashion. Just a couple blocks east of that statue of William Pitt, in fact, once stood a slave market. Now, although it had been closed by the year 1762, slavery was still alive and well in all parts of the city. City leaders also made another miscalculation with the King George statue. The king and the idea of British rule had gotten less popular in the years since the statue was commissioned. The Sons of Liberty had only become more emboldened with this idea of independence 
toying with British soldiers by installing regular liberty poles in the city commons and then under dark of night, posting handbills with insightful language of rebellion all over the city. On January 19, 1770, several Sons of Liberty clashed with soldiers on a site called Golden Hill, which is today's John Street in Lower Manhattan. Then, many weeks later, demonstrators in Boston were attacked by soldiers, firing their muskets into the crowd and killing five people, including a formerly enslaved man named Crispus Attucks. As you might gather then, Outside of old Codwallader, Colden here, almost nobody was in the mood to see King George waving at them from this impossibly tall pedestal in Bowling Green. The statue was almost immediately vandalized and further disgraced with street garbage that soon collected at the foot of the statue. In 1771, the city constructed an iron fence, which encircled the Oval Park and protected the statue, at least momentarily, from any further disgrace. Now, that iron fence certainly looks fancy, but it was no deterrent to vandals who continued to deface the statue with graffiti and messages, sometimes extremely vulgar messages, applied in paint along the stone's pedestal. In response, on February 6, 1773, the General Assembly passed an anti-desecration law, quote, an act to prevent the defacing of statues under a penalty of 500 pounds fine or one year in the common jail. People continued to risk breaking these laws in defacing the statue further, especially when the British Parliament passed its Tea Act that year, the year that Bostoners then took that tea and threw it into their harbor. This city was no place for a king. And the events of the next few years would sow further discord between England and its colonies, leading to the summer of 1776. We'll get to the rest of the tale after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. 
hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. New York City in the summer of 1776. The war had come to town. Now, the previous year, 1775, had seen the conflict between the British army and the rebel forces ignite in the city of Boston. In Philadelphia, the Continental Congress met and formed an army with a Virginia military general and plantation owner named George Washington at its command. By March of 1776, Boston was in British control, and the Continental Army headed to the next city in danger of invasion. New York. The city was quite naturally in a state of total pandemonium. To quote from David McCullough, quote, New York had become an armed camp and thousands of people, perhaps a third of the population, had fled, fearing it was soon to be the scene of terrible calamity. Business was at a standstill, unquote. Just imagine the slow terror of living in New York at this time. A British fleet was coming to overtake the city, possibly to destroy it. Your protectors were living in occupied homes, thousands of exhausted, feeble-looking militiamen. They called themselves an army, but what did that even mean at this point? What did it mean for the British to attack New York when technically New York was still just a colony of the British. Over the course of several months, those most loyal to the crown, the Tories, well, they all fled, leaving behind their homes and property and sometimes their names. For instance, James Delancey, who had actually been born in New York, his family owned a large plot of land just north of the city along the East River waterfront. Fearing retribution for his Tory loyalties, Delancey fled America in 1775. His lands, which make up a portion of today's Lower East Side, were later sold and parceled out. But his name is still affixed to an important boulevard in the Lower East Side, Delancey Street. Now, he had a good reason to flee. Loyalists were being freely attacked in New York, tied up and led through the city in mockery. From a 1901 book by Alexander Clarence Flick, quote, 
the excess of the spirit of liberty was made a painful object lesson to the loyalists in the destruction of Tory printing presses, types, manuscripts, and books, the burning of individuals in effigy, tarring and feathering and other personal outrages, breaking windows, stealing livestock and personal effects, and destroying property. The whole city was searched for Tories, and several were dragged from their lurking holes, where they had taken refuge to avoid the undeserved vengeance of an ungovernable rabble. Unquote. Soon, the city was inhabited by only two types of people, those who were too poor to leave, and those whose zeal for American independence compelled them to stay. Again, from the book Gotham, quote, Lukewarm patriots, as well as Tories, fled New York in droves. By the end of 1775, more than 10,000 of the city's 25,000 inhabitants were gone. By July of 1776, only 5,000 or so remained. To see the vast number of houses shut up, one would think the city almost evacuated, wrote one departing Tory. Among those who remained in the city was a young man named Alexander Hamilton, the captain of an artillery company stationed in Fort George. Meanwhile, along the British shore, at forts in the areas of today's Brooklyn Heights, Cobble Hill, and Red Hook, from this vantage, nervous company members spotted an ominous sight coming through the Narrows on July 2nd, 1776. As described by author Ron Chernow, quote, some 300 ships and 32,000 men, including 8,400 Hessian mercenaries, a fighting force designed expressly to intimidate the Americans and restore them to their sanity through a terrifying show of strength. The British has so many troops stationed about this floating city that they surpassed in numbers the patriotic soldiers and citizens left facing them in New York." Unquote. And through it all, through war and bloodshed, through the evacuation and the building of these fortifications and the amassing of the military and the, just the general chaos of the city, through all of this, there at Bowling Green sat the statue of mighty King George III, the face of all that was now crushing down upon the city, gesturing out what in other days seemed symbolic now seemed like a grim prediction like the Roman emperor that the statue was designed after, King George had come to conquer its rebellious colonies. Meanwhile, that very same day, okay, July 2nd, 1776, as the military power of General William Howe sailed into New York Harbor, several dozen men, representing all 13 colonies, huddled in a room in Philadelphia's Independence Hall. And there they hatched the beginnings of American independence. First with a resolution on that day, okay, July 2nd, quote, that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. Two days later, these sentiments were ratified by this Congress into a Declaration of Independence. The document was then rushed to the printing shop of John Dunlap to be distributed far and wide throughout the colonies. On July the 6th, 
a special letter, was delivered to George Washington from the hand of John Hancock. Quote, the Congress has judged it necessary to dissolve the connection between Great Britain and the American colonies and to declare them free and independent states, as you will perceive by the enclosed declaration, which I am directed to transmit to you, and to request you will have it proclaimed at the head of the army in a way you shall think most proper. Unquote. On July the 9th, the official announcement would be made at the city commons on that evening at 6 p.m., as well as other parade grounds in the area. Copies would be distributed and read from each ground. And at the city commons, the site of so many protests, both then and, and now, the site of today's City Hall Park, it was here on July the 9th that hundreds of people gathered to see George Washington's own copy of the Declaration of Independence read by an aide. Quote, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Now, it's doubtful that every man and woman that day heard and understood every word of the Declaration of Independence. Had they been listening closely, would they have agreed with every sentiment? Would they all say that all men were created equal, were the rights of life, liberty, and, and the pursuit of happiness unalienable? What these New Yorkers most likely heard, though, was something that amounted to a starting pistol or a clarion call. They were officially no longer under the rule of a king. Working up a patriotic frenzy, no doubt energized by both adrenaline and alcohol, New Yorkers turned to a city full of references to royal rule, Queen Street, the King's Arms Tavern, and so on. As the sun began to set on a now rebellious New York City, the torches were lit and anti-royal passions spilled into the streets. Shop signs with crowns upon them were smashed to splinters. Episcopal churches were shuttered, and the most unfortunate ones were sacked and pillaged. The governor of New York, William Tryon, declared every visage of royalty, as far as been in the power of the rebels, is done away. Eventually, the demonstrators gathered at the tip of the island at dusk, near Fort George and the statue of King George III, the air filled with cries and protests. With nobody to enforce the city's anti-graffiti laws, its pedestal was red with undignified protest messages. Yet believe it or not, nobody before now had thought to disgrace the body of the king himself until now. The fencing was breached and trampled, and the citizens began pelting the statue with stones. Soon, two ropes were thrown over the statue, and the crowd began to heave and pull. According to some speculation, the statue was actually not very well constructed. As a result, it may have tumbled quite quickly to the ground, and it did so in one piece. The king, 
the horse and all, still attached to a portion of the marble pedestal. Even in a city used to burning all manner of effigies to troublesome kings and governors, the effect of toppling a statue of the king must have been thrilling, profound, and perhaps lastly, terrifying. A Philadelphia newspaper later declared, quote, On Thursday last, the equestrian statue of George III, which Tory pride and folly raised in the year 1770, was by the sons of freedom laid prostrate in the dirt, the just desert of an ungrateful tyrant. The lead wherewith his monument was made is to be run into bullets, to assimilate with the brain of our infatuated adversaries who, to gain a peppercorn, have lost an empire. Anticipating war, New Yorkers had already begun salvaging items made of lead throughout the city, and now a very symbolic and very large supply of such material had now dropped into their laps. The head of King George was defiled, its laurel wreath chipped out, its nose chopped off, and the entire thing eventually severed. Paraded through town, it eventually made its way to the Bluebell Tavern in the area of today's Washington Heights, where it was displayed on the tip of a pole. Demonstrators rid the statue of its gold leaf decoration, and the remaining lead husk of this fallen work of art, all 4,000 pounds of it, was sent to Litchfield, Connecticut, where it was rendered into lead bullets by the ladies of the Walcott family, as in Oliver Walcott, one signer of the Declaration of Independence. The bullets were rendered in a specially made shed in the Walcott's apple orchard. In fact, documents indicate exactly how many bullets each member of the family made. In total, the women produced over 42,000 cartridges. On July 12, 1776, a colonist named Ebenezer Hazard wrote, quote, The King of England's statue has been pulled down to make musket balls of, so that his troops will probably have melted majesty fired at them, unquote. In fact, we can be sure that many British troops were most likely wounded and even killed by these very bullets but a great number of those demonstrators who tore the statue down, those agitators, the Sons of Liberty, the soldiers of George Washington, a great many of them would not survive the war, or even the year, as the British would finally mount their attack on August 27, 1776, landing at Gravesend, Brooklyn, and soon overtaking Washington and his army here in Long Island. The army would retreat to New York only to eventually abandon the city as well, escaping to White Plains in October, then to New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Now, down on Wall Street, the world had changed all around that poor little marble statue of William Pitt, just standing there in the middle of the street. It, too, had been mercilessly abused over the years. The meaning of Pitt's statue had been lost almost overnight. Celebrated by the Sons of Liberty, just within a few years, the statue began, like King George, to embody the tyranny of English rule. It was permanently damaged during the city's occupation by the British during the Revolutionary War. 
At some point, Pitt was also beheaded and his arms were torn off. Believe it or not, what remains of William Pitt lives today at the New York Historical Society on the Upper West Side. They also have a curious piece of the King George statue, which managed to avoid being turned into bullets. The tail of King George's horse is also there in the Historical Society collection, as well as smaller portions of the statue and even a slab of the pedestal. And during the Revolutionary War, there had also been rumors that the head of King George had survived, rescued from that pole in the front of the Bluebell Tavern, and then sent to England. However, since the war, so since the 18th century, nobody has seen the head of the king's statue. The living King George III, on the other hand, would go on to enjoy a lengthy life, ruling until the year 1820. The American Revolution, in a way, was but a blip in his reign. He was briefly succeeded by his two sons, George IV and William IV, and then by his granddaughter, the woman who would become Queen Victoria. But you don't need to go to a museum or to Buckingham Palace to see a surviving remnant of this story. Simply make your way down to Lower Manhattan, to City Hall and to City Hall Park, the site of the old city commons, and to the Alexander Hamilton Custom House. Today, that is the National Museum of the American Indian. This was the site of Old Fort George. And finally... Bowling Green is still there. It's a beautiful manicured park with a gushing fountain in place of an oppressive equestrian statue. And encircling the park is the same iron fence that had been placed on this spot 249 years ago. So I recommend going down there on a nice day, look at that fountain, reimagine this massive equestrian statue of King George III. Picture those demonstrators, those rioters, the Sons of Liberty pulling the statue down and think to yourself, were these people erasing history or were they making it? For images, illustrations, and old paintings of some of the things that I spoke about in this show, visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. You can also find us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I want to thank those who support us on Patreon.com, which has really been getting us through the past few months. Thank you all for supporting us there for just a small donation. You keep the show up and running here. And we're able to even give you some bonus audio features. In fact, uh, just I think next week or two weeks. Anyway, very, very soon here, a new episode of the Bowery Boys Movie Club will be released exclusively to patrons. Uh, there are many episodes of that. And of course, our other Patreon-only show called The Takeout. I want to extend a very special thank you to the following patrons. Joanna G. from Manhattan, Kate M. from Virginia, and additional patrons Larry K., Stephen J., Stephen B., Cynthia K., Leanne S., Giovanna R., and Michael Q. Thank you all for helping us keep the show going and supporting us on Patreon.com. 
finally, by the way, check out BoweryBoysWalks.com. That is the Bowery Boys walking tour uh, company. We're not doing any on-the-street walking tours uh, this summer, but there are a lot of virtual tours that I think that you might enjoy. You can actually do them from the comfort of your home. And in fact, you know, what's, I guess, one plus about this is that you don't actually even need to be in New York to join these kinds of walking tours. They've been wonderfully received. So check out BoweryBoysWalks.com for more information. So thank you very much for listening to this tale of King George III and, and his horse. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. <laughs>